Welcome to this official first episode of the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of FilmJerk.com. The Film Jerk Podcast will be an irregularly occurring podcast covering a wide variety of aspects of 1980s cinema. Sometimes we'll cover a specific film, or a specific filmmaker, or one of the many film distributors, completely independent or studio-dependent, that popped up and or flamed out during the 1980s. Originally, this episode was going to focus on the films of obscure 1980s distributor Jensen Farley Pictures, but as I was preparing to record that episode, I was reminded that August 6, 2019 was the 10th anniversary of the passing of filmmaker John Hughes. So I'm throwing a lateral into my schedule to spend some time looking at all the films John Hughes wrote, produced, and or directed during the 1980s. John Wilden Hughes Jr. was born in Lansing, Michigan in the winter of 1950. By his own account, Hughes had a rather quiet upbringing during the first part of his life. He didn't have many boys his age in his part of town, and he spent most of his time when he wasn't following the Detroit Red Wings and their legendary right-winger Gordie Howe alone in his room imagining things for his own amusement. In his early teens, Hughes' dad moved the family to Northbrook, Illinois, a suburb of Chicago which was originally founded as Shermerville in 1901. It was in Northbrook where Hughes would meet his future wife and where his obsession with movies would be shaped. After going to the University of Arizona for a short time, Hughes started selling jokes to comedians like Joan Rivers and Rodney Dangerfield. Hughes was able to take his skills as a writer to get a job as a copywriter for an ad agency in Chicago, where he would end up creating the somewhat famous Edge Credit Card Shaving Test ad campaign. With an ordinary credit card, we're going to prove that Edge lets you shave closer than the leading foam. First, listen to an unshaven face. Now we'll shave the left side with foam, the right with Edge. Edge lubricates as it lathers so we can press harder to shave closer than foam. Now listen to the foam side, then listen to the edge side. Foam, edge. Edge lets you shave closer than the leading foam. His work at the ad agency frequently took him to New York City, where he ended up getting to know the guys who ran the National Lampoon magazine, where he'd end up getting a job as a contributor. His very first submission, called Vacation 58, which was based on his own summer road trips with his family, set him up as a major player at the magazine, and it is said that he contributed so many stories that the monthly magazine just couldn't use all of them. After the success of National Lampoon's Animal House in 1978, Hollywood came calling for every contributor in the building, and John was eager to become a filmmaker in Hollywood, so he wrote multiple screenplays while still working for the magazine. How prolific was John Hughes the screenwriter? Between 1979 and 1982, When the first movie based on a screenplay he had written finally got released in the theaters, he had written no less than seven screenplays, including the infamous parody sequel, Jaws 3, People Zero, which Universal did not end up making, for better or for worse. Of those seven, three did end up getting produced in quick succession, which would be released within eight months of each other. The first was National Lampoon's Class Reunion, which was a weird mix of zany comedy and slasher horror, and it died a rather quick and ignoble death when it was released into theaters in November of 1982, barely grossing $10 million against its $10.1 million budget. It's got a decent cast, including Garrett Graham, Michael Lerner, Stephen First from Animal House, and Anne Ramsey, but it's never really funny or scary enough to be anything interesting. 
John Hughes claims to have been fired off the project and that the final film was nothing like his script, but then he also appears in the movie as a girl with a bag over her head. It was a bad start to what would end up being an industry-changing career. Mr. Mom would hit theaters in July of 1983. Based on a disastrous experience he had looking after his two children in the absence of his wife, Hughes and producer Lauren Schuler first developed the story as a TV movie alongside Aaron Spelling, with whom Hughes had a deal for television projects. But Hughes would soon be fired because Spelling wanted the writer in Los Angeles, and Hughes didn't want to leave his family in Chicago. Eventually, Universal Studios would convert it from a TV movie to a theatrical feature and hire up-and-coming actor Michael Keaton to star. Hughes is once again the sole credited writer, even though the script was rewritten after his dismissal, and Miss Schuler is on record as saying while she liked the final product, she felt Hughes' original screenplay was much better. Still, the film was a success, grossing nearly $65 million, and it made a star out of Michael Keaton. Universal, knowing Hughes was responsible for the original idea, would sign Hughes to a three-picture deal based on the success of Mr. Mom. The third Hughes screenplay from that initial burst of creativity was National Lampoon's Vacation, which Hughes himself adapted from that first creative piece at the magazine, updated to the modern day. We all know about Vacation, the unexpected franchise starter that spawned three not very good sequels, and a horrible 2003 sidequel featuring Randy Quaid's cousin Eddie, and a disastrous 2015 reboot of the series featuring Ed Helms as the grown-up Rusty. However, while the film was a success, earning back four times its $15 million budget, its $61.4 million gross was less than Mr. Mom. So why did we never get a Mr. Mom cinematic universe? The next John Hughes screenplay to get produced would be unlike anything else in his career. Nathan Hayes was not his original idea. He would be brought in to punch up an existing screenplay written by David O'Dell, who also wrote The Dark Crystal and the 1980 Ken Wall Judge Reinhold film Running Scared. Nathan Hayes was not a comedy, but a swashbuckling adventure film set in the South Pacific before the turn of the 20th century. A pirate movie featuring the then 36-year-old Tommy Lee Jones as the bearded captain of a pirate ship. And yes, I will give you a few seconds to let that sink in. Nathan Hayes is not a very good film. It wants to be an Indiana Jones-style adventure film, but on a budget that would get you less than half a Mr. Mom or a vacation. Tommy Lee Jones is pretty bad in it, and it would be the start of the end of Michael O'Keefe's run as a B-level movie star. And the film was not a success, grossing all of $1.9 million during its very abbreviated Thanksgiving holiday run. Not that Hughes had much time to worry about how Nathan Hayes was doing. During the summer of 1983, John Hughes began production on his first film as a director, part of that three-picture deal with Universal, a high school comedy called Sixteen Candles. It made Molly Ringwald, who had previously had smaller roles as Miranda in Paul Mazursky's modern retelling of Shakespeare's The Tempest, and in a wretched 3D sci-fi movie called Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, an up-and-coming star, and solidified Anthony Michael Hall as a young actor with an amazing sense of comic timing, which had also been seen to great effect in National Lampoon's Vacation. Made on a $6.5 million budget, the film became a minor cultural touchstone and brought in more than $23.5 million at the box office. His next film, though, was a game changer. The Breakfast Club. 
The Breakfast Club was an anomaly, a Hollywood movie with only a $1 million budget. No one gets ripped up by a chainsaw-wielding guy in a hockey mask and a knifed glove. No one is immediately desperate to get laid. There's no giant chase scenes or massive explosions. It's just a movie about teenagers and their feelings. Breakfast Club defined me. When I saw it on opening night, February 15th, 1985, I was a senior in high school. A group of friends and I went to the Del Mar Theater in downtown Santa Cruz to see it. The prime show on a Friday night. The theater sat about 225 people, and that theater was packed. When the David Bowie song lyric appeared on screen at the start of the movie, the place exploded. I don't think there was anyone in that theater that wasn't an actual teenager, and we all saw ourselves in at least one of the characters. As someone who ran track and played baseball and basketball and soccer during portions of my life, I saw a bit of myself in Andrew, but I didn't really relate to his problems. As a tall, nerdy, and awkward young man, I saw a bit of myself in Brian, but I didn't really relate to him either. And I definitely wasn't a Bender or a Claire. It was Allison that I related to the most. Plain, unassuming, able to slip around most people without being noticed or bothered, a teller of embellished tales to mask the pain of my private life, pretending to be a loner, but desperately wanting to belong, waiting for someone to recognize the person I really was. Over the course of that 97 minutes during that first show, I saw something on a movie screen that I suspected was happening with others elsewhere, but I didn't really have confirmation of because of most of my friends were also Allison's, hiding their sorrow from the world even if they did have a small but close-knit group of friends. 34 years later, I still have a soft spot for The Breakfast Club. I bought the Criterion Blu-ray the day it came out in 2018, and I watched it that day. It never really was a great movie, and I can recognize that now. At 17, I didn't know much about the world outside my own little circle, and I wasn't quite the cinephile I would become in later years. It's a rather naive movie with characters that aren't really people, but the most absolute basic archetypes possible. Which is understandable, it's John Hughes, it's not Chekhov. But it was one of my favorite movies of the 80s while the 80s were still happening. If I were creating a ranking of John Hughes movies for this episode, I'm not sure it would even make my top five. But when I'm watching it, I'm not a 51-year-old commentator of cinematic arts who has lived a very successful and enriching life, but that sad and lonely 17-year-old again who couldn't get a date if his life depended on it, and at the time it really did feel like it did. The Breakfast Club would end up grossing more than $45.8 million during its theatrical run and would make stars of all of its five leads. So ubiquitous were they and their actor friends and co-stars in 1985 that serious articles were being written about them in the likes of New York Magazine, which would famously dub them the Brat Pack, a nickname that was silly then and is primarily used dismissively today. And if you liked John Hughes' movies, you didn't need to wait long for his next one. Weird Science would open less than six months later in August of 1985. We're going to skip National Lampoon's European vacation on this list, which had opened in theaters the week before Weird Science. For while John Hughes is credited with the story and as co-writer of the script, it is known that his contributions were simply unused items from the first draft of that original vacation movie. Weird Science was not a very good movie then, and it's not a very good movie now. Sure, Kelly Will Brock was gorgeous and a pleasure to watch, but it demonstrated what was one of John Hughes' biggest problems as a writer. He couldn't always let what he felt was a good gag go, even if it was injurious to the overall storyline. 
some of its handling of people of color was on the same level as Long Duck Dong and Sixteen Candles, and it also robbed itself of one of its prime assets. Anthony Michael Hall felt out of his element here. In some ways, it feels like all the direction he was given to do was to think of what Farmer Ted from Sixteen Candles would do in the same situation. And it just doesn't work. And audiences must have felt it wasn't on the same level as The Breakfast Club, as the film only grossed $23.8 million during its theatrical run. Now, it would be easy to say that 1986 was Hughes' watershed year, but he seemed to keep having them. The first Hughes film of the year was his first production as a writer and executive producer, but not director. Released two weeks after Valentine's Day, Pretty in Pink was yet another cultural touchstone moment. It put Molly Ringwald on the cover of Time magazine at the age of 18. Its post-punk soundtrack filled with the likes of OMD, The Smiths, In Excess, Suzanne Vega, and Echo and the Bunnymen was one of the best movie soundtracks of all time, and a perfect encapsulation of that moment in time. And it would go on to sell more than half a million copies in just its first two months. Howard Deutsch, the director of Billy Idol's Flesh for Fantasy music video, would make his feature directing debut here, and would become Hughes' stand-in a couple more times. Audiences enjoyed the film, but it wasn't quite the hit that The Breakfast Club was, grossing just $40.4 million in theaters. But in that June... (laughs) Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Once again, Hughes changed the movie landscape with Ferris. We'll save the argument about whether the impacts of Ferris were for better or for worse for cinema. Suffice to say that it was easy to see why the movie caught on with audiences. At 18 years old, Ferris Bueller was everything I wish I had been in high school, even though I had graduated the year before. He was cool, from a good family, he had a lot of cool gadgets at his disposal, charming to a fault, had an awesome British girlfriend, and he could get away with almost anything. I wanted to be Ferris. But I was Cameron without the family money in the 1961 Ferrari 250 GT California Spider to drive around. Although I would be driving a 72 Mustang Mach 1 Fastback soon enough. Ferris was a young male wish-fulfillment fantasy on steroids. And the film would become, in a year that also included Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, Platoon, Star Trek IV, and Aliens, the 10th highest grossing movie of the year, with just over $70 million in ticket sales. Today, that would translate to just over $163.9 million, which would make it the ninth highest grossing movie so far in 2019, higher than How to Train Your Dragon 3, but lower than John Wick 3. 1987 would be a year of transition for John Hughes. His first film of the year, February Some Kind of Wonderful, would be his second collaboration with Howard Deutsch and would be the final teen film in his filmography. At its core... It's literally a one-year-later remake of Pretty in Pink, with the genders of the lead characters reversed. Eric Stoltz would be the Molly Ringwald, Mary Stuart Masterson the John Cryer, and Leah Thompson the Andrew McCarthy. And to be honest, I think it's a better movie overall than Pretty in Pink. The three leads here are better actors, and I'll take Elias Coteus' Duncan over any supporting character in Pretty in Pink. And the colorful poster of the three pensive stars is better than the monochrome one sheet of Pink's three pensive stars. And the soundtrack to Some Kind of Wonderful with its less known acts like Flesh for Lulu, The Apartments, The March Violets, and Lick the Tins is song for song a more complete collection of what was cool and new wave at the time. 
But although Some Kind of Wonderful was better received critically than Pretty in Pink, audiences didn't see much of a difference and stayed away. The film would barely gross $18.5 million. Now, if you talk to people today about Hughes' other movie from 1987, you'd think it was one of the biggest hit films of all time. No one talks poorly about planes, trains, and automobiles. Everyone seemingly loves it. And what isn't there to love? It's two of the top comedic actors of its day, at the top of their game, bouncing around the country, having wacky adventures just to get home for the holidays. While Steve Martin could play that role in his sleep, this is probably John Candy's single best acting role. Del Griffith breaks your heart. And not just for what he does on screen, but also in part because we know now we no longer had John Candy with us that much longer, and we unconsciously lament the loss of the actor he could have become. Yet, despite its near-universal critical acclaim, the film only grossed $49.5 million during a very lucrative Christmas time run. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles finished its theatrical run on January 22, 1988. Hughes' next movie, She's Having a Baby, was released in the theaters 14 days later, on February 5th. She's Having a Baby was actually filmed before Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which did feature a cameo of She's Having a Baby star Kevin Bacon, which should have been a callback to this movie had this one been released first as originally intended. The film is somewhat autobiographical in the sense that the Kevin Bacon character, Jake Briggs, is an advertising copywriter in Chicago who had left his college career in the Southwest behind, and he wants to become a writer. Bacon's okay in the role, and Elizabeth McGovern does what she can with her character, but it's Alec Baldwin at his studliest that steals the movie in his few brief scenes he's in. The film would only play in theaters for five weeks, exiting with a little more than $16 million in ticket sales. The Great Outdoors, the second John Hughes movie of 1988 and his third and final collaboration with director Howard Deutsch, was a mawkish attempt to remine the family vacation field that was so successful just five years earlier. This time, instead of one family on a road trip to a theme park, you had two families, related by blood, tied together for a lake resort vacation. John Candy isn't given much to do, and Dan Aykroyd is far too over the top as the slick brother-in-law. But it did give most of the audience their first real glimpse of Annette Benning, although her Katie is a worthless role, and it would be another two years before she'd really shine in the double whammy of Postcards from the Edge and the Grifters. Yet, despite its overgrown sitcom-y feel and its pathetic score, The Great Outdoors somehow managed to gross more than $41 million into theaters. Now, if I were rating John Hughes' movies, Uncle Buck would probably come in second after Some Kind of Wonderful. Here, Hughes again teams with John Candy, but for some real movie magic. The real star here, though, is the then eight-year-old Macaulay Culkin as Buck's nephew, Miles. In one scene that lasts less than 30 seconds, you can see why Hughes would build a family movie around Culkin just one year later. Where do you live? In the city. Do you have a house? Apartment. On a rent? Rent. What do you do for a living? Lots of things. Where's your office? I don't have one. How come? I don't need one. Where's your wife? Don't have one. How come? It's a long story. Do you have kids? No, I don't. How come? It's an even longer story. Are you my dad's brother? What's your record for consecutive questions asked? 38. I'm your dad's brother, all right. You have much more hair in your nose than my dad. How nice of you to notice. I'm a kid. That's my job. Movies released in mid-August usually don't do very well, as this time of year is usually seen as a dumping ground. But audiences flock to Uncle Buck, making it the biggest hit for Hughes as director thus far, remaining in first place at the box office for its first four weeks of release, 
and grossing more than $66.7 million by the time it was done. 1989 would end very well for Hughes. After having almost no involvement in the second vacation movie, Hughes was brought back to write and produce the third movie in the series, Christmas Vacation, which was adapted from another National Lampoon short story of his, Christmas 59. It's not a very good movie either, with most of its adult cast sleepwalking through their parts. Hughes would even comment that the films had become little more than Chevy Chase vehicles. As had become tradition for the series, new actors were hired to play the Griswold kids, Audrey and Russ. This time around, it would be Juliette Lewis and Johnny Galecki. And it's easy to say how, even in their young teens, they were destined to remain working actors long after they grew into adulthood. But audiences still wanted to see Chevy Chase at this point of his career, or at least wanted to see him as Clark Griswold. Christmas Vacation would become the highest-grossing film of the series, and the highest-grossing movie of anything John Hughes was involved with during the 80s, grossing $71.3 million. The early 1990s would see Hughes have his highest triumph as a writer and producer with Home Alone, and his last movie as director, The Plotting Curly Sue. He wrote and produced several hit family films throughout the decade, including the Glenn Close-led live-action remake of 101 Dalmatians, the Robin Williams-led remake of The Absent-Minded Professor, this time called Flubber, and two more Home Alone movies. At the edge of the new millennium, Hughes wrote and produced a drama, 1998's Reach the Rock, that barely got a theatrical release through Universal Pictures, and produced 2001's Newport South, a film written by his son James, that is completely forgotten today, in part because its scheduled platform release started the Friday before 9-11, and audiences just weren't interested in teen anarchy in the days after that deadly terrorist attack. After 9-11, Hughes pretty much disappeared from public life. Made in Manhattan, a romantic comedy he had written earlier and was supposed to direct, started production in the spring of 2002 under the direction of Wayne Wang. Hughes's name would not be found in the credits, though. The story by credit would be listed as Edmund Dantes, a favorite pseudonym of Hughes's, which he also used on the slobbering dog Beethoven movies. It would also be the name he'd have assigned for his story by credit for 2008's Owen Wilson alleged comedy Drillbit Taylor, which would be the final movie based on one of his works. John Hughes passed away in New York City on August 6, 2009, of a heart attack. He and his wife had flown to the city the day before to visit their son James and their newly born grandson. His impact on cinema and pop culture cannot be understated. Judd Apatow has said that his works as a filmmaker were basically just John Hughes films that said fuck a lot. When some of the biggest stars in Hollywood get a few seconds of screen time in the annual In Memoriam segment of the Oscars, John Hughes received a six and a half minute tribute from seven of his actors with his wife and four children present. And then when you see some of the other actors that I've not yet mentioned who got some of their earliest big screen roles in a John Hughes movie, and the mind boggles. Actors like Dylan Baker, Andrew Dice Clay, John Cusack, Joan Cusack, John Cryer, Robert Downey Jr., Gina Gershon, Jamie Gertz, Jennifer Grey, Bill Paxson, and James Spader. For a brief and shining moment, John Hughes helped shape the person I would become, and for that I will be eternally grateful. His films helped cement friendships that still exist for me more than 35 years later and introduced me to bands I hadn't heard of before who have remained on my playlist as we've moved from vinyl to cassette to CD to digital.
John Hughes is not in any danger of being forgotten anytime soon. I'd like to thank each and every one of you listening to this podcast today. As always, I want to hear what you think, both positive and negative. You can leave me a note on this podcast page at filmjerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds, either at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. And if you do like this podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review in the iTunes podcast store. Future episodes will look at distribution entities like Jensen Farley, Ryan Pictures, and Canon Films, as well as a look at the relatively obscure 1984 comedy Nothing Lasts Forever, starring Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Zach Galligan, and a two-part look at the 1980 movies of Steven Spielberg, one as a director and one as a writer and producer. The Film Jerk Podcast has been a production of idiosyncratic entertainment, written, edited, and narrated by Edward Havens. Thank you again, and good night. Thank you.